Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show is about the true costs of a nuclear agreement with Iran and why the best policy today is to support the Iranian people in their struggle to free themselves from the grip of the clerical tyrant, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. My guest is the brilliant analyst, Ali Reza Nader. What you're hearing is the sound of downtown Tehran at midnight on Tuesday. The crowd is chanting death to Khamenei, Iran's octogenarian supreme leader who is said to be suffering from very ill health yet again. The latest protests in Iranian cities were sparked by the death of Masa Amini after her arrest for improperly wearing the Islamic head covering known as the hijab. She was arrested by the regime's morality police and never made it out of detention. Amini's death has further angered many Iranians from all strata of society. This outrage, you could say, is overdetermined. To quote the mighty most deaf, why did one straw break the camel's back? Here's the secret, the million other straws underneath it. Popular anger at the regime has been building really for decades. Just in the last six years, Iranians have taken to the streets to protest the lack of drinking water, the collapse of banks whose funds were looted by regime insiders, the brutality of the regime's security services against peaceful protests. Bus drivers, oil workers, and students have all held strikes and other acts of civil disobedience. After the regime stole the 2009 presidential election, hundreds of thousands of Iranians poured into the streets. To this day, the two moderate candidates in that election, Mir Hussein Mousavi and Mehdi Karoubi, remain under house arrest. But if you had to pick a beginning point to this cycle of unrest, I would choose the 1997 presidential election in Iran. That year, the reformer, Mohammad Khatami, a moderate ayatollah, won in a landslide. He campaigned on implementing the Iranian constitution, which actually enumerates many human rights and civil rights for its citizens. He promised to reform the system, and engage in a new kind of foreign policy that he called a dialogue of civilization. Here is an AP video report from 1997 on Khatami's landslide election. The smiling face of moderation, or at least what's considered moderate in Iran. 54-year-old Khatami is crushing defeat of his hardline opponent, followed campaign promises of more personal freedoms, human rights, and greater democracy. It was a message whose appeal was stronger than anyone expected, revealing in the people of Iran a keen desire for change. It especially won over the country's intellectuals, its youth and women hoping for an easing of regulations. I'm so good. <laughs> he had pr um, programs for the protection of the women and youths. Are you happy he won the election? Very much, very much. We choose him because we believe in him. I suppose that uh, this is going to be a very uh, nice future for us. The outgoing President Rafsanjani, who wasn't a candidate, denies the vote represents a protest against the Islamic Republic. But he admits that Iran's young want something different. The influence of the youth vote has been quite influential in electing Mr. Khatami. Khatami's presidency is unlikely to soften Iran's foreign policies. Even domestically, he'll have to battle a conservative parliament. 
But even if there's not much change in substance, there should be in style. As you hear in that clip, there were high, high hopes for Hatami. There were also high hopes in Washington. In 1997, the U.S. president was Bill Clinton. He was presiding over a moment of extraordinary power for America. The Soviet Union had collapsed. America believed that it could be allies with other great powers like Russia and China. That has not worked out so well. And here was a new Iranian president who signaled he was ready to talk. Nearly 20 years after Iranian revolutionaries held our diplomats hostage for 444 days at the end of the Carter administration. Here's a clip from a groundbreaking interview with Khatami in 1998 with CNN's Christian Amanpour. You say that you want to talk to the American people. Are you prepared to sit down eventually and talk to the American government about the issues that you have just mentioned tonight that separate, that divide you? Firstly, nothing should prevent dialogue and understanding between two nations especially between their scholars and thinkers. Right now, I recommend the exchange of professors, writers, scholars, artists, journalists, and tourists. A large number of educated and noble Iranians now reside in the United States as representatives of the Iranian nation. This shows that there is no hostility between the two nations. Now, I should say that Khatami would go on to say in this interview that he saw no need for political ties between Iran and the U.S. government. But for the Washington foreign policy elite, Khatami was singing a seductive song. The president of a country known for mass rallies where crowds chant death to America wants to encourage the kind of cultural exchanges that led to diplomatic relations with Mao Zedong's China. Many in Washington said, sign me up. There was, however, a catch. Mohammad Khatami was only the president of a country where the real power resided with the supreme leader. Iran has had only two of them, Ayatollah Khomeini and then Ayatollah Khamenei. And from the start of his term, Khatami was undermined. His proposals were rejected by the unelected Council of Guardians. Meanwhile, the domestic security services launched a bloody campaign to kill prominent intellectuals. These were known as the chain murders. In early July... 1999, a new law designed to destroy the reformist press that was allowed for a period under Khatami was passed in the Iranian parliament known as the Majlis, and it was passed over Khatami's objections. And when a popular newspaper, Salem, printed a story on who were responsible for this new law, that newspaper was then shut down. And so in response, students at Tehran University who had supported Khatami and the calls for reform decided to protest. Because of a law that prohibited the police or the intelligence agents at the time to conduct official activities at Iranian universities, the regime instead sent a fanatic militia known as Ansar Hezbollah to raid dormitories of students believed to be involved in the uprising. Now, here is, here is Mohammad Manzarpour, who was a student journalist in 1999 covering the events at Tehran University and is today a journalist for the BBC's Persian service. And here he is this year in an interview with Roj Media. Well, the plainclothes thugs basically entered the grounds of uh, Tehran University dormitory in Amirabad uh, in the early hours of the morning before the dawn. And they had ransacked the entire door. Most of the rooms were raided. The doors were broken down. 
many students were uh, had sustained uh, very severe injuries. The, the, the assailants were armed with um, batons and knives and all sorts of potentially lethal weapons. And one person uh, was shot. Now, the crackdown prompted people from all over Tehran to side with the students. Remember, Hatami won only two years ago in a landslide. His programs were still popular. And the university effectively was shut down because of this people power. There was a great cover from The Economist magazine from July 1999. It's a famous photo with a student waving a bloody shirt in a crowd. It kind of gives you a sense of what things were like back then. Now, I bring all of this up because after the crackdown at Tehran University, it was clear that even if Hatami wanted to reform the Islamic Republic, he lacked the power to do so. Nonetheless, in Washington, Paris, London, and Brussels, the foreign policy establishment still insisted that Iran's regime was comprised of hardliners and reformers. We've heard it all before. And it was worth crafting a foreign policy that helped the reformers and isolated the hardliners. Now, this was a delusion and a costly delusion, but it nonetheless informs U.S. policy in some circles to this day. Hatami managed to hold on to power. He was weakened and, of course, humiliated until 2005. I was in Tehran at the end of 2002, and I remember watching a televised public trial of a former advisor to Khatami who was facing prison time for participating in that dialogue of civilizations. He helped conduct an opinion poll on behalf of a U.S. think tank. And I should say that this was the beginning of a long purge of anyone who sought to reform or open up the Islamic Republic. In 2005, Iranians were not given any real choice for another reformer. So the next president was Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. He was a populist thug who delighted in antagonizing the great Satan. It's under Ahmadinejad that Iran publicizes its Holocaust cartoon contest. One year, the winning entry was a drawing of Anne Frank and Adolf Hitler in bed with the late Fuhrer telling her to put that in her diary. Total dirtbags, the uh, Iranian regime is. Anyway, then in 2009, things heat up again. The announcement came the day after several people were killed in the capital following demonstrations. At least one man died after shots were fired, apparently in response to an unknown group attacking the headquarters of the Basij paramilitary force. And reports say several more had been killed the previous night at the University of Tehran. But there was no violence at the biggest rally the city has seen since the 1979 revolution. Tens of thousands of opposition supporters, mostly young, marched to Freedom Square. It was a happy crowd to start with, and people relaxed even more as it became clear riot police were under orders not to interfere. They all came to see this man, the defeated candidate, Mir Hussein Mousavi, who hadn't been seen in public since last Friday. Inching through the crowd aboard his four-wheel drive with a handheld microphone, he told the crowd, our people want respect and for their votes to be counted. The 2009 election was a shock to the world, but particularly it was a shock to the new American president, Barack Obama. He campaigned on negotiating with Iran. He was the anti-George W. Bush, who Democrats claimed wouldn't negotiate with rogue states. That's not exactly right. He did send envoys to meet with Iranians from time to time, particularly as it regarded the Iraq war. But this was, you know, Obama's thing. And here he is reacting to the uprising and crackdown in Iran in 2009. My understanding is, is that uh, the Iranian government says that they are going to look into irregularities 
that have taken place. Uh, we weren't on the ground. We did not have observers there. We did not have international observers on, on hand. Uh, so I can't state definitively one way or another what happened with respect to the election. But what I can say is that there appears to be a sense on the part of people who were so hopeful and so engaged uh, and so uh, committed to democracy uh, who now feel betrayed. Notice here that Obama does not side with Mosavi and his many supporters. He does not assert that the election was stolen. And he does not make any concrete threats to Iran with regard to their treatment of the protesters or, for that matter, the political opposition. And unsurprisingly, the regime would go to work disappearing the organizers of these protests and other reformers. As I mentioned earlier, Mousavi, who addressed the crowd in an earlier clip, has been under house arrest since 2010. The purge of reformers continued. Eventually, Obama got back to his original policy of outreach to Iran. He would send the supreme leader, that's Ayatollah Khamenei, letters pledging not to interfere in Iran's internal politics, a reference to the CIA's role in supporting the 1953 coup that displaced the elected president, Mohammad Mossadegh, at the time. And during Ahmadinejad's second term, the Obama administration began secret talks with Iran over its nuclear program. Those talks became the basis for the negotiations in his second term, which were not secret, that led to the 2015 nuclear agreement. One factor the Obama administration highlighted in its second term was that the new Iranian president who won in 2014 was in the mold of Mohammad Khatami. His name was Hassan Rouhani. And the argument from Obama's White House was that Rouhani wanted to make a deal. Here it's worth pointing out that Rouhani was the national security advisor during the 1999 Tehran University uprising. He authorized that bloody crackdown we spoke about earlier against the student protesters. So it was extraordinary that the U.S. government was now pretending that Hassan Rouhani was some sort of reformer like the president whose policies he undermined back in 1999. Regardless, Obama had his narrative and he was sticking to it. Here he is after the implementation of the nuclear deal in 2016 in an address to the Iranian people on the holiday of Nowruz. It may take time for you, the Iranian people, to feel the full benefits of the lifting of these sanctions in your daily lives, but the benefits are undeniable. Iran now has the opportunity to begin reintegrating itself with the global economy. That means more trade and investment, which will mean more jobs, including for young Iranians who dream of pursuing their careers and making their mark on the world. It will mean more access to cutting-edge technologies, including information technologies that can help Iranian startups. It will mean more opportunities for Iranians to sell your exports, including textiles and agricultural goods, to the world. And I know that Americans are eager to buy more of your beautiful Persian carpets, caviar, pistachios, and saffron. It's worth pointing out here that none of that actually happened. Iran's regime did get a windfall of money as a result of the nuclear deal and a side agreement where my friend Jay Solomon from the Wall Street Journal reported they also received pallets of cash as a sort of payment in part in exchange for the release of Iranian-American prisoners who the regime had taken hostage. So Iran did get a lot of money after this deal, but they poured it for the most part into their regional war in the Middle East. Conditions for Iranians after the deal and under Rouhani worsened even before the sanctions that Donald Trump would reimpose in 2018. They continued to basically suffer. 
Iran's economy was dreadful. Unemployment, by some estimates, was at 40% for people under 30 by the beginning of 2018. Again, this is before the sanctions are reimposed. Banks were collapsing because of corruption from regime insiders. There was an ecological crisis with drinking water reservoirs drying up. And all the while, the execution and disappearance of activists intensified under Rouhani. Iran Human Rights Monitor estimated in 2019 that at least 3,800 people had been executed under Rouhani's presidency. So it's not surprising that Iranians continue to take to the streets. In 2017 and 2018, we saw more protests, but this time they came from all strata of Iranian society. This was led in part by rural citizens who had for years been loyal to the regime. And this is the context for the wave of protest we're seeing today. The time for reform is over. Iranians want to oust the corrupt thieves and killers who purport to rule them. As listeners to this podcast know, I favor a policy of solidarity with Iranians struggling to take their country back. Americans cannot be the author of Iran's liberation, but we can make clear that Iran's tyranny will never be accepted by the civilized world. I anticipate here a fair objection. A regime collapse would also create a security nightmare for the West with regards to Iran's nuclear material and equipment. In the chaos of a new revolution, it's possible that all of this will end up in the hands of rogues and terrorists. To a certain extent, that is a fair point. But my response is that the nuclear program is already in the hands of rogues and terrorists. That's who this regime is. And even if America continued to pretend that Iran's regime would actually keep its word, which there's no reason to do, the Iranian people are nonetheless furious, and they increasingly feel that they have nothing to lose. My hope is that it's only a matter of time before Iran's new shahs are driven from power, but I would also not bet against it. There is a history of these kinds of popular revolutions. And I should also say that if history is a guide, we rarely know the moment, the tipping point for these dictatorships. We rarely know that. It never shows from the outside. The tyranny always appears to be very strong and stable and imposing from the outside, but there will always be these kinds of fissures, and there is definitely a legitimation crisis in Iran today. So wouldn't it be smart to begin planning for that transition now? I hope that would be the case, but so far, there really is not much in the way of policy from either Republicans or Democrats to suggest it is. So I guess at this point, I take small solace in knowing that Iran's ailing leader, Ayatollah Khamenei must know, as he suffers from his many infirmities at the ripe age of 83, that the nation he rules with such cruelty prays that he suffers. Numbers is hard to feel and they never have feelings But you push too hard, even numbers got limits Why the one straw break the camel's back is the secret The million other straws underneath it is all mathematics I'm mighty most definitely It's simple mathematics Check it out and now, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. 
Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. Well, the re-education now is lucky to have a good friend of mine, Ali Reza Nader, who is a longtime veteran Iran scholar and policy analyst based in Washington. He has a lot of years at the RAND Institute. He's also been at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. Ali Reza, thanks so much for coming on The Re-Education. Thanks for inviting me, Eli. It's a pleasure. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you coming on. Sure. Today's show is a look at in some ways, the roots of Iranian anger. And I wanted to ask you, kind of going back to this moment in the late 1990s, in 1997, when Iranians voted overwhelmingly in a landslide to elect Mohammad Khatami, who was a Mm -hmm. reformer. And I believe that that was a hinge moment and that it sort of of set things in motion now, in that Hmm. there was this hope that, the system could change and reform. Those hopes were soon dashed. And the Iranian people have shown extraordinary patience to try to make their voices sort of heard when given a chance at times through election, at times through protest and other things. And each time they have done that, the answer has been crystal clear from the regime that there is no interest at all in joining the modern world, allowing for more freedoms, allowing for any kind of democratic transition between various leaderships or any of this. But I want to get your perspective. So in 1997, what, is, what was the significance of that election? And then was Khatami able to actually make good on his campaign promise? That's actually a really great year to start the discussion. When Khatami was elected as president, he made a lot of promises to the Iranian people. And unlike some of the other leadership in Iran, like the founder of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khomeini, Khatami presented a very different image. He was charming. He smiled. He dressed well for a cleric. He knew how to engage Western audiences. He promised Iranians that there would be a loosening of social restrictions and control and that he would open up Iran to the rest of the world. And he completely failed. Right now, Khatami has a really terrible reputation among the Iranian people. Iranians see him as being part of the system that has repressed them for more than four decades. And I think, actually, when I talk to Iranians, they reserve a special kind of hostility to so-called reformists like Khatami and so-called moderates like Rouhani and Zarif, because a lot of Iranians believe they lied to the people, that mm. not only did they not reform the system, but they help keep people like the dictator of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, and the Revolutionary Guards in power. So the reform movement in Iran is completely dead. 
there is zero expectation that the system will change in any meaningful and positive way. And the reformists in Iran are very discredited. And that's one reason you see really revolutionary protests in Iran today. There are major yeah. protests in every city. I, I want to get to that in a second, but I want to stay yeah, on people, Kasimir people, for a moment. Yeah. yeah, people know that you know, the system is going, not going to reform itself, that people like Khatami and Mousavi, the 2009 presidential candidate from the reformist camp, are completely useless. So I want to I want to get into some of what happens with the mm -hmm. Iranian kind of uprisings that we see continuing to bubble up. But I want to talk about Khatami's election in the context of US foreign policy and Western foreign policy. Right. Because until 1997, Iran was kind of like they reminded me a little bit of Jack Nicholson and a few good men. You're damn right I ordered the code red. They were proud to say that they were a rogue state, that they rejected the modern kind of system in some ways. They were a defiant power. There was no effort to try to meet America or, for that matter, you know, the Europeans halfway. There mm -hmm. was a, a sense that, you know, we are a revolutionary power and we, can, we have no real friends except for other fundamentalist Islamic regimes. And... We are not interested in the, you know, the, the trappings of your diplomacy and dialogue. And then sure. here comes this guy who's like, hey, let's have a dialogue of civilizations. And while he would never quite say something like, we reject terrorism all the time, he would say that I'm against the killing of any innocents. And I'm also against state terrorism like Israel. But he was he he, he there was a clear difference in tone. And right. even, you know, and, and I think that the U.S. government, this is the Clinton administration, the Democratic administration. They looked at all this and they then you have to keep in mind at this time, they're still they're dealing with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So here's our kind of, you know, since the 1979 revolution, the United States has had terrible relationship with Iran. And here's this new president who's maybe interested in coming out of the cold. What was the effect in Washington on, hmm. you know, after Khatami is elected in the sense that, like, you know, now there's this like almost a boom in a like kind of policy industry of engagement with Iran. Right. Yes. Talk a little bit yeah, about that. You know, yeah, you know, Khatami's dialogue of civilizations, I think, gave a lot of hope to people in the national security establishment in D.C., but also academics and advocates and lots of other people. I think Amer a lot of Americans believe that Khatami could reform the system. After all, Gorbachev had right. really tried to change the Soviet Union, ending up in the collapse of communism. And there was a lot of hope that Khatami and then Rouhani. Well, let's, we'll talk about like, Rouhani in a second because it's sorry. very important to get to him. But let's talk about Khatami for, yeah. But there was, you know, a lot of people thought Khatami was going to be the new Gorbachev of Iran and that his presidency would lead to detente between the United States and Iran. You know, there was talk about cooperating with the Islamic Republic in Afghanistan, especially after 9-11, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And none of that turned out to be true. I remember Madeleine Albright, after Khatami's presidency started, I believe, actually apologized to the Islamic Republic for uh, the... Yeah, the 1953 coup by the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, their involvement in the coup, it's a very complicated story. But 
ultimately, Khatami didn't deliver on anything, right? If anything, the regime's foreign policies became more aggressive. It started to control more of the Middle East. It wrapped up its nuclear program and built long-range ballistic missiles, gave a lot more money to terrorist groups. So as far as I can see, I mean, it's absolutely certain to me, I should say, that Khatami was really a front for the regime. Hmm. He got people's hopes up. Khamenei, I you think, don't think used he was very... undermined by the hardline factions? Look, I think Khatami knew what he was doing all along. He knew the reality of the power structure in Iran. He knew that his presidential authorities were limited. He knew that Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guards were in control. There were no meaningful reforms from him. What actually happened is... We agree there was no meaningful reforms, but I think I want to put Zero, back. zero. Yeah. I, I don't think there were any meaningful reforms. I mean, he allowed some newspapers to open up, but what happened was after down. people started expressing themselves, the newspapers were shut down and the journalists were arrested. Some of them are, are, you know, are my good friends and they had to flee Iran with their families. And so he was a complete disappointment. I don't think he was aggressive enough in pushing back against the Revolutionary Guards when the 1999 student protests happened in Tehran. He didn't do anything. He actually sided with the regime, and he has sided with the regime every time there have been public protests. He let down the student groups that supported him. And if you look at what he's doing in Iran today, He's not really doing anything. The regime has actually banned him from public appearances, and he is despised among the people. He's had a few defenders and promoters in the U.S. and the West, but I think even they've given up on him. So that's really interesting. What I want to ask you, though, is Mm -hmm. in this period, maybe you just tell us really quickly, what are the chain murders? Because this happens under Khatami's presidency. And this is actually involving a journalist who I, I guess now lives in Canada named Akbar Ganji, who I think exposes all of this. But talk a little bit about what the chain murders are under the new reformist president. So when Khatani became president, there were a series of chain murders of intellectuals and journalists. And we clearly think we, we know these are this is the regime they were yes. often gunned down by guys on motorcycles and with submachine um, guns. And... Yeah. I mean, c- c- some of the murders were really, truly horrific, Eli. There, there's an older opposition couple who were brutally murdered in their house in Tehran. There have been actually a lot of brutal assassinations and murders that took place under Khatami's presidency, both in Iran. After he became president, less so in the West. But, you know, those have started again. So this was described by, by promoters of engagement with the regime in D.C. and elsewhere as the so-called hardliners trying to undermine yeah. Khatami. And there's some truth to that, but he was also president. He chose the minister of intelligence at that time. You can't say he didn't have any authority or he was completely powerless. And in large part, I think he turned a blind eye to the chain murders and the repression of democracy activists. After the chain murders, I think he lost a lot of credibility among the public because the real powers to be the Revolutionary Guards demonstrated that they could stop any political maneuver coming from him. Okay, so 
this is hot to me. Now, he manages to hold on as a kind of weak president mm-hmm. until, I think, 2004 or five, where then you get... Five. Yeah, 2005, and then you get Muhammad Ahmadinejad, who is a complete, like, you could argue, kind of he's like a populist. He was... He marketed himself as somebody who lived a modest lifestyle when there was mm-hmm. a lot of resentment of the sort of regime elites living in luxury while mm-hmm. lots of people in the in the country were 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 impoverished. And, and he was a kind of unreconstructed thug. He denied the Holocaust. He said outrageous things about gay people. He right. You know, he 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 was in some ways a little Trumpish, you know, in the sense that he <laughs> delighted in offending the sensibilities of the West. And in this period, what is, I mean, in Iran, there still is a movement of opposition, but Ahmadinejad is, you know, somebody who is very much a kind of product of the security state and is Mm -hmm. totally willing to use it to crush domestic dissent. And, you know, it looks like the, the, the years, at least from the perspective of an Iran, the years of the reformist are over. And yet in Washington, maybe you can talk about this, they're still talking about reformers and hardliners, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. When Mahmoud Ahmadinejad became president in 2005, it was widely known in Iran that the Supreme Leader Khamenei favored him. And his presidential election is often referred to as being engineered by Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guards. Those forces were very close to him in the beginning. They had a falling out later. But I remember there were a lot of reports of the Basij paramilitary forces and the Revolutionary Guards voting for Ahmadinejad and being encouraged to vote by Khamenei. And supposedly Khamenei's son, Mujtaba, who is now mentioned as a possible successor to him, favored Ahmadinejad as well. And that was the regime's reaction to the Khatami period. All the Khatami didn't really change anything in Iran. Khamenei was not happy with and didn't really want Iran to say, open Khamenei up. is the supreme leader of Iran, yes. who has the real yeah, power. Right. He's the yeah. supreme leader of Iran. He's been the leader since 1989, and he wields absolute authority. You could argue he's almost the Iranian Stalin. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think now the presidential system is really meaningless. You could argue it it wasn't very meaningful back then. So Ahmadinejad becomes president. He rallies the the ultra-conservatives, the hardcore ideologues in the regime to his side. In 2009, he faced this, you know, second election and... The other person running against him was Mir Hossein Mousavi, who was a reformist candidate. And the regime declared that. And Mehdi Karoubi, the former Speaker of Parliament. Remember, these guys, Karoubi and Mousavi, are diehard Islamic Republic supporters, right? They served under Khomeini. Although in that, in 2009, they were a vessel for popular anger at the regime. Yes, they were. Yes, exactly. I mean, you could argue all of these figures who are vetted and allowed to actually run in Iran have to a certain extent kind of, you know, go along with the the ideology of the state. However, you know, there's an interesting way in which some that you'll see certain figures kind of get em- become embraced by the popular. But we still have an Iranian 
the Iranian people are still kind of holding out hope that they can use their vote mm -hmm. as a yes. way to change the system. Because that was the last time. Right. In 2009. So in 2009, they, they believed that if they showed up and they participated in this election, that, you know, they could they could reverse the, the direction of Ahmadinejad. Right. So even I though mean, we agree that Khamenei is the one with all the power anyway, but. Right. So there yeah. are a lot of people in Iran who thought if they voted for Mousavi because he was a reformist aligned with Khatami, that he could change the system and open it up like uh, Khatami tried to do it when he was president. And the regime declared Ahmadinejad as the winner. And so there were massive protests in Iran because a lot this of This is in 2009. In 2009, a lot of people thought that the regime had fixed the election, that the Revolutionary Guards had intervened and declared Ahmadinejad the president before the votes were counted. So there were massive demonstrations in Iran and Musavi and Karubi took advantage of that. They rallied the people to their side, but not to get rid of the political system, right? But to preserve it. And so these guys really do believe in the system, Eli. You know, they believe in the theocracy. They think that should be changed in order for it to survive. Yeah, and... I'm saying there, the reform is actually, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, you can, reform is a good word, I think, in some ways for people who believe in a system, but think it has to change in order to survive. Right. Exactly, exactly. And so in that respect, Khatami and Musavi, I think we would say are reformers, although certainly Musavi's past is somebody who has, you know, supported all kinds of mm -hmm. crazy reactionary things. We all know that, but at least he presented himself in 2009 as somebody who wanted to yes. expand some freedoms and like, you know, maybe come in from the cold a little bit and... right. And he was popular for a while. I think yeah. a lot of people believed he could change the system for the better. You know, people in Iran don't want, they don't want violence. They don't want a violent revolution. They know the forces they're arrayed against is a brutal regime. So they thought that their vote could make a difference. And Khamenei ended up locking up Musabi and Caribbean. Today, they're still under house arrest. Right. And also, and, there is a mm -hmm. brutal crackdown, a purge of their supporters. It's very important to say there's a purge of their supporters. Many go disappearing, yes. many are murdered, many are detained and right. sent to Avian prison. Many are many exiled. Moved many, moved many moved to DC. Many and are exiled, yeah. right, exactly. There's, okay. a, there's a huge purge, again in 2009, of what was remaining of this sort of called reformer movement. Now I wanna I keep coming back to this, but yet the establishment in Washington DC still talked about reformers sure. and hardliners Despite yes. what happens in 2009, and yet, and and President Hope and Change Barack Obama yes. cannot bring himself to say that the election was stolen in 2009. He is still holding out hope that he can. Mm -hmm. He's sending letters to the Supreme Leader Hamane. He wants a nuclear deal very badly. Yes, all of this is happening in the background, and to a certain extent, it's like the Iranian people. Oh, it's so inconvenient. There's you're 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 ruining my diplomatic strategy for a, for nuclear negotiations sure. in some ways that was the right. seemed to be the way that they were doing it and we should also say in this period Barack Obama and his white house are relying on the counsel of a man named Trita Parsi who was the right. founder of the National Iranian American Council which by the way comes into existence in the Khatami era where it's all the yeah. rage to talk about the reformist president and there's all these opportunities and we should, you know, that was sort of where it was coming from. 
Yes. So talk a little bit about the response from Obama to the rupture of 2009. So Obama decided to ignore the protests in Iran because he wanted a nuclear deal. His advisors told him not to intervene. I believe Ben Rhodes was one of those advisors. And these advisors were At also... At the time, Ben Rhodes was a little bit of a junior chipmunk, but I mean, I, I think he was getting well, people more like also from him, Susan right? Rice. and Yeah, people like yeah. him. And you know, people like Trita Parsi and Nayak were telling the White House that if you intervene on the side of the Iranian people, it will empower the hardliners, which it's is... It's a poison pill. They, you, yeah, you'll, right. you'll, hug, you'll suffocate them. Right. It's a common theme that we heard for years that if the White House didn't support the moderates, it would empower the hardliners. And so Obama ended up not siding with the protesters in Iran. And I think the U.S. really lost a very critical opportunity because the regime was really shaky at that time. You know, we, you had up to a million people in Iran, in Tehran, protesting, and yeah. probably millions across the country. And Obama, although he called himself a progressive, decided not to side with progress in Iran. Because well, he, of the yeah, what did he say agreement. when he was asked that question about, there was a, an iconic image of a young woman named Neda who was murdered yes. and you saw her bloody body on the streets. And he did say something that was very Obama-esque, like, Yo, you know, I feel for that woman, but he, he, he couldn't get himself to the sort of logical consequence of his empathy, so to speak, right? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, and, you know, he would, he would say like, you know, Iranian people should be free and everything like that, but it wouldn't change, it wouldn't affect the policy. He still believed that it was more important to reach a deal with ultimately the hardliners at that point. Definitely. Yeah. I think the White House's response to the protests was very perfunctory. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe Obama really used this excuse of, you know, empowering the hardliners versus moderates because he just wanted a nuclear agreement. He didn't really care what happened in Iran. He thought it wasn't any of America's business. He was under this, I think, delusion that the U.S., the everything the U.S. had done in Iran was, yeah, yeah. was wrong. And so... What's the point of siding with the Iranian people? And so they forged ahead with the nuclear negotiations. The, you know, the Obama administration and the Democrats in general have always held this hope that some sort of miracle Gorbachev-like figure in Iran would emerge in Iran and they could negotiate with that person. They, they don't really believe the system can be overthrown. No matter what happens in Iran, they, yeah, I think they're under this assumption that either this system is going to last or a fundamental transformation in Iran is risky for America, which I think is very short-sighted and wrong-headed. Yes. And they've been encouraged by the reformists and their buddies in D.C., people like Trita Parsi, who have really maintained this fiction of moderates versus hardliners. Right. Okay. Moving on, Ahmadinejad eventually leaves power in 20, is it 2013 or 2012? It's, uh, Let's see. He it, would have been, it, it would have been 12, 2013. 
13, right? Yeah, so right. he was president but, for eight years, okay. starting 2005. Now, we should say, despite the lip service given to moderates and hardliners, the Obama administration was perfectly willing to negotiate with Iran when Ahmadinejad was the president. And what they would later say is that we know the real power is Khamenei, the supreme leader, anyway. So in some ways, they I don't know if they themselves believed the talking points. But this, mm-hmm. these, as we know, in, the, at, in this period, the talking points in the first Obama administration and the Obama administration, both terms are moderates and hardliners and so forth. And then Hassan Rouhani wins the presidency. And I want to just sort of set the stage here and then I want to hand it over to you. Okay. Let's go back to 1999. 1999 is when we have the uprising at Tehran University. These are the students who are furious that the promises of Hatami after two years are not being delivered. And so they protest, which is something that happens a lot in Iran and Iranian Mm -hmm. history. I mean, this is the beginning, you know, go back to the 70s, obviously. It's Rouhani, who is national security advisor in that and at that time, basically authorizes and executes the very violent repression of the 1999 uprising, undermining at least the spirit of Hatami's policies, even though I think we would agree that Hatami did very little to actually get it done. Mm -hmm. And yet, by the miracle of Washington's spin, (laughs) Hassan Rouhani is presented in 2013 as 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 a new Hatami. He's a he's a new reformer. Yes. He's the moderate. We can he's somebody who with whom we can do business. Let's talk about that because there's this kernel of truth there that Rouhani has a has a kind of almost tactical difference with, mm-hmm. you know, some of some of some of his fellow thugs. You know right. what I'm saying? Like he some yes. of them are like, you know, like I, I think we should rob the bank this way. And he's like, no, I think I have a better way to rob the bank. That's how <laughs> I would look at it. Like I think, no, 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 we should just go in with our guns blazing. No, 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 no. I can That's do it good. with if I just hack the computer or right. this kind of thing. If I convince them to give me the money. If I, I could <laughs> just convince them to give me exactly. Right. So talk a little bit about that. There's and by the way, this is the beginning of what we might call the echo chamber, mm, which is yeah. the very pernicious white house controlled sort of you know network of think tank experts friendly journalists and others to create this impression that the iranians have had another kind of reform moment and that rouhani is going to really represent a sea change and so forth and this is all the rage i mean i remember do you remember that guy he was he's now at the intercept ali garab remember him oh yes right ali garab wrote these pieces that were like Human rights activists love Rouhani. It was like embarrassing, frankly. Anyway, sure. take it away, Ali Reza, because I want to kind of get your. So at this point, this is the this is the mode. It's like Rouhani's in, and now you've got. And now they come out and they they acknowledge what the secret negotiations that were taking place in the first term. And here we have this process whereby you know Obama is going to get his foreign policy legacy, right? If you look at Rouhani's career, he's always been part of the national security establishment in Iran. When when he was the national security advisor and had various roles within the system, he authorized assassinations and murders, authorized the repression of protesters. I remember even years ago when he was a younger man, there's a speech of saying that a woman who refused to wear the compulsory hijab should be punished. I believe they said he said that they should even be hanged. So great guy. 
this is a man that's part of the system, but he has a very different approach than the knife building thugs, if you will. Right. He, he believes in quote unquote diplomacy. He claimed he has a PhD from Oxford, but although he barely speaks English. I mean, if you look, watch his interviews, he can't speak English. Even the, he can't say like a hi, how are you? Very well. But he was sold as this moderate, I think, like you said, to sell the nuclear deal. And we have to remember when he was president in 2019, the regime slaughtered at least 1,500 Iranian demonstrators during the 2009 Aban uprising. Probably, he's a butcher. He's a butcher, but... He knows how to engage Western media. He knows the game in D.C. You know, his pharmacist, Zarif, speaks perfect English. He studied in Colorado. Uh, yeah, well, now close... we're talking about Javad Zarif, who's an important figure yeah. here. Be... So he knows how to work the system. At Khamenei yeah. knew this guy was loyal, but he knew how to work the system. Can, we, can so we just take a, a, a slight moment to talk sure. about Zarif? Yeah, yeah. Because Zarif is a fascinating figure for the following reason. Yes. He's not in Iran for the revolution, but he's a total revolutionary. He's actually yes. studying in the United States. But he believes it. He's this is somebody who 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 buys everything that Khomeini is selling at this point. And he's he's he kind of has that, you know, revolutionary mindset. And yet he spends all this time in the United States. Mm -hmm. And he was the Iranian ambassador at the United Nations. And in that slot, and this is under Khatami, Javad Zarif manages to make a lot of friends in Washington. He right. obviously was very close with someone we mentioned earlier, Trita Parsi, but he has these meetings with Democrats and Republicans in, uh, in Congress in this period under George W. Bush. He has a lot of these relationships. He's one of the few Iranian senior officials who will actually answer emails with journalists and think tank right. types. So he is somebody who has made himself available. He, unlike Rouhani, Javad Zarif speaks perfect English. Yes. And he looks oftentimes, you know, and, and you can find this on YouTube. There are countless hours of him being feted at the most prestigious oh, think yeah. tanks in America and Europe. And he sits there smiling like the cat who just ate the fish. He is just... <laughs> Absolutely, you know, you can see him like he could melting butter in his mouth or something. Like he's just, in some ways, very charming. And yet, he's not, he gives the impression, I think, to his interlocutors, correct me if I'm wrong here, that he's like them. He, you know, he went to Western universities. He, mm -hmm. he knows international law. He's like they are. But he, in fact, this is somebody who's an unreconstructed, hardline revolutionary oh, sure. as well. Yeah. And he's, conning all of you know the expert class in 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 brussels london washington and new york right i think that a lot of americans think just because zaire speaks perfect english and he doesn't wear a turban and a robe that he's somehow different but he's a very devout islamist and follower of khomeini he's very loyal to ayatollah uh, khomeini the current supreme leader what zarif has that a lot of other people inside the regime, Mike has an understanding of the United States and U.S. politics. He's very savvy when it comes to U.S. politics and lobbying. And he's always said that the Islamic Republic should have a lobby in Washington, D.C., just like the Israelis. You know, he calls them the Zionists. 
and he knows how to work the system. He got really close to former Secretary of State John Kerry, who called Zarif a patriot. So he really knows how to work the system and apparently, like Kerry used to talk to Zarif at least once a week, if not more. Yeah, they have they have each other's cell phone number. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't just that there were two diplomats. They're very friendly. Uh, oh, yeah. And so it was a very, I think, to me, odd relationship for an American official to have with the foreign minister of a theocracy that wishes death upon America every day. And if you go back and look at National Iranian American Council, which was started with Trita, that was started by Trita Parsi, you know, there are emails between them going back 20, year, 20 oh, yeah. years, I think. And you know, some people have even told me that it was Zarif's idea to create this, you know, so-called Iran lobby in Washington, D.C. And Zarif also has cultivated this really widespread network of journalists and academics and even human rights activists to support his cause. So he's a very clever man. In Iran, a lot of people think of him as being like a hyena. They think his smile resembles that of a hyena, but he's no moderate. He's very committed to the preservation of the system. And he believed that through the nuclear negotiations and then the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or, or the nuclear agreement, he could preserve the Islamic Republic. This wasn't just a non-proliferation agreement. This agreement is about keeping Islamic Republic alive. Khatami didn't do it through reforms, but now the system is doing it through repression while advancing its nuclear program and conventional abilities. And Zarif convinced a lot of people in D.C. as well, if they needed convincing, that the true enemy was Saudi Arabia, that the Islamic Republic was very powerful in the Middle East, so the Obama administration should come to terms with that reality. And now Zarif is also very discredited, not just in Iran, but I also think in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And people now really see him for who he is. He's now in cons- comfortably in Tehran. He comes from a very wealthy family. He's supposedly teaching a university class. And although he doesn't have an official role, I have no doubt that he's whispering in the ears of various officials. Now, look, there are people in the regime who don't like him. I think within any political system, you're going to get people who have personal rivalries. A number of people in the revolutionary guards really disliked Zarif and criticized him. But this doesn't mean he's some sort of moderate or I'm so, I'm so glad you, you made, and I think it's a very important point. I like to, I would compare it like this. Mm-hmm. At the end of the 1970s and the early 1980s, there were factions within the Gambino crime family that mm-hmm. you had the people around John Gotti, people like Sammy the Bull Gravano, who just wanted to be like street level murderous gangsters. And then you had big Paul Castellano, who was the boss of the family, who wanted to try to go a little bit more legit. They were still criminals. They just thought sure. that, like, we didn't, you know, we don't have to, you know, we, we don't have to get our hands so dirty in the streets when we can make all this money in stock fraud. And I would say that, like, Zarif is sort of the big Paul Castellano and somebody like Ibrahim Raisi, who is the current mm-hmm. president and also the other leading contender to replace Khamenei when he leaves his mortal coil. 
would be on the kind of John Gotti side of it, which is to say <laughs> that Abraham Reese is one of the four judges who in 1988 is presiding over a horrific atrocity where thousands of political prisoners are either shot by firing squad right. or hung in galleys, gallows, I should say. And, you know, you, th- this is somebody who is loathed by Iranians all over the world. And he yes. is the, pre- he's the current president. It's a disgrace in many ways that he is going yes. to be speaking on Wednesday at the UN. Now, let's, I want to say in this period where you have intense negotiations leading to the Iran nuclear agreement of, of 2015, we're not seeing much in terms of mass protests in Iran. Uh-huh. Although there's clearly resentment there of the Iran. The Iranian people are still angry and they're upset. But it's, it's, there is some hope, would you say, in the idea that with sanctions lifted as a result of this agreement, that conditions will improve for Iranians. Right. So then what it's, happens? <laughs> sure. Just, you know, the mafia comparison is really interesting because I think this regime is like a mafia. Yes. A lot of people in Iran think of it as a mafia and even a cult. They think of the Islamic Republic as Khamenei's cult. And there's a, a lot of evidence to that because, because he is being promoted as a cult-like leader now in Iran. Uh, in, in 2015, after the nuclear agreement was signed, Rouhani had promised the people that things would improve for them, that at least the economy would get, or get better. And he e- even said that he would desecuritize the political system, meaning that political and social repression w- would decrease. He said that his policies were a key. And he became very fa- famous for that. And the key became his symbol that this nuclear agreement would be a key to solve the people's problems. He adopted the color purple for his presidential candidacy. And I remember when he became president, people poured into the streets cheering him, not because they thought he was some sort of moderate, because Iranians know who these guys are, but you know, they're desperate for change. They're being crushed under this regime. And and After the sanctions the, and the corrupt between the sanctions and the corruptions, sure, they wreck sure, right. this foreign policy that is brought out. You know, it's there's the terrible a, it's environmental a terrible policy. What you know, there's severe yeah. water shortages in Iran caused by this regime, and nothing like that happened. Nothing positive came from the JCPOA for the Iranian people. The regime got a lot of money out of it. And we should we should remind our listeners mm-hmm. that in this period, the Obama administration is almost doing PR for the regime because they're yes. the ones assuring everyone they're going to get all this money, but we think they're going to use most of it in sort of rebuilding the economy and yada, yada, yada. Yes. This was their line. Disgraceful. Secretary Blinken, I believe she went on CNN and said he thought that... When he was uh, the, the deputy money, secretary of state. Deputy secretary, yeah, thank yeah, when you. He, well, now he's the secretary of state, but yeah. Right. You know, he said that the money would be spent on domestic issues you know, like the regime would build hospitals because of the JCPOA. So those, a lot of Obama and then Biden officials made those promises and okay. said that the money would be spent domestically. But actually, the regime spent a lot of the money on building up the Revolutionary Guards. Has, and, and, and aiding and abetting Hezbollah, atrocities Hamas. and war crimes of Bashar al-Assad in Syria yes, with right. a new alliance with Russia, which is interesting historically because the Russians were part of the great game and they were resented by the Iranian people 
going back to the 19th century. But yeah, n- nonetheless, this revolu- this mm-hmm. revolutionary regime is willing to be friends with those thugs in Moscow. Sure. So, yeah. And now it's, you know, Iranian UAVs are crashing into Ukrainian tanks and troop carriers because Iran is supplying them to Russia. So that JCPOA money is now being used by Iran to fight the Ukrainians. By the way, isn't um, and, it just, can we take as, as Ali Reza is a, um, is a keen scholar of international relations as well as not just Iran, but isn't it interesting that Russia in some ways is such a Potemkin military that they have to actually right. purchase UAVs from the Iranians? That's you pretty suck, cosmetic, If you're actually. listening, Russian military, you suck. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, okay. it's it's pretty pathetic that they're using Iranian technology. But like you said, the JCPOA was money was used to crush the Syrians to commit genocide in Syria you know, to pull have, off a coup, half a million to dead. pull off regime mm-hmm. change in Yemen, in Yemen to maintain their Islamic Republic's power in Iraq to destroy Lebanon. I mean, look yeah, at to Lebanon, destroy Lebanon right now. Yeah, so it has really affected the region again. The the Obama-Biden officials like to pretend or claim that the JCPOA is just a non-proliferation agreement. And they say, we'll talk to the Islamic Republic about other things after we re-enter the JCPOA. But if you look at the history of the nuclear agreement, it was terrible for the people of Iran. It was terrible for the rest of the Middle East. And it's even bad for the Ukrainians right now. Nothing has, good has come of it. The nuclear program right now is really ahead. Since Biden became president, they've really wrapped up the nuclear program and uranium enrichment. Now they're saying that they don't want the International Atomic Energy Agency to investigate very suspicious enrichment activities. They said that has to be shut down before they make any sort of concessions. That was the case actually today in New York as President Macron of France met with Raisi. They're, so they're you know, stalling on the nuclear negotiations, moving very close to being able to assemble nuclear weapons while they're killing the people of Iran on the streets, murdering women for not yeah, wearing well, a compulsory hijab. So it's, this is, a, I think the JCPOA is an uh, all-around failure from a strategic standpoint and really a moral failure. I think this is going to be a historic mistake for the United States. I want to get to that. And I obviously, you and I agree on the JCPOA, which is, by the way, the Iran nuclear deal it stands for the Joint Comprehensive Program of Agreement. And that's because it's not a treaty. And we don't even know, by the of way, if the Iranians actually signed anything. I mean, we just... No, there's no signature. Anyway, but we could talk about the nuclear deal all day, but it's not as interesting as in my view yeah, I don't as want the to, real actually. story, which is the mm-hmm. Iranian hunger and thirst for freedom and yes. to take their country back, which is really the only way out of this pickle for the world and for Iran. But I want to get to... There's something that happens, and this is an interesting thing because... Donald Trump is elected in 2016, and Donald Trump campaigns on the idea of getting out of the Iran nuclear agreement. Mm-hmm. But we also notice that almost as soon as he's like in power, we start to see a series of protests all over the country, and it's no longer just right. 
urban Iranians. It's no longer like the people who have been furious at the regime now since the betrayal of Khatami, if you will, right? The people, you know what I mean? It's now it's like sure. bus drivers. It's like oil workers. It's everybody. There's just across different strata of society, we are seeing acts of brazen disobedience mm-hmm. to the regime. And it's being met with extraordinary brutality. Now, I don't think that this is because, you know, of Donald Trump. I think it's because right. at by this point, the Iranian people understand, like Khatami's promises in 1997, Rouhani's promises are worthless. Right. Right? Exactly. And yes. so, so, so President Rouhani is failing to deliver. This is before the sanctions are reimposed. Mm -hmm. This is in the period where there's supposed to be a gold rush in Iran. Yeah. And yet the regime is still doing things to discourage investment, such as taking further hostages. Americans or other Westerners, they're, you know, continuing to arrest people, which is not a great way to attract international investment. (laughs) More importantly, we see this huge scandal, which didn't get nearly enough attention in the West, which is the failure of banks, which have people's pensions and savings, because they were basically looted by regime insiders. We yes. had a huge, there was a huge scandal there. And you mentioned the environmental scandal of the lack of drinking water for a lot of the country and yeah. an arable right. land and, 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 and a failure. And it has a huge effect on the agriculture. So talk a little bit about what we've now seen sort of taking us up to this moment where we have now letter protests roiling the country again over the mm-hmm. killing of a Kurdish woman by, mm-hmm. you know, in custody of the morality police. But this is like, you know, this has been a kind of slow ro- boil. It's been going on now for like six years, right? Sure. Yeah, th- those protests, the first round of protests started late 2017, I believe in December and continues through th- 2018. And this was before the Trump administration exited the nuclear agreement and before the policy of maximum pressure. So people were really fed up already. A lot of the protests started in small towns and villages that were suffering from severe water shortages. And I remember I wasn't active on social media until then because I started getting these videos on Twitter and other social media showing people going to the streets and calling for the overthrow of the Islamic Republic. And I hadn't seen those sort of mass, we call them barandas, and Persian barandas means overthrow. Mm. Those sort of barandas protests since the 1979 revolution, because the 2009 Green Movement wasn't about really getting rid of the regime. It was about, yeah, it was about overturning an election, right? It's yeah. Different. And yeah. since... And since the end of 2017, there have been, I would say, five to six, counting this round, major public uprisings and probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of demonstrations over every issue you can imagine from looted pensions, like you mentioned, water shortages, a refusal to wear the compulsory hijab. Um, So... People in Iran have been struggling to get rid of the regime since 2017. So what's happening today is not new. I think the visceral anger of the Iranian people toward the regime is new because of the murder of Masa Amini, the young Iranian Kurdish right. woman, whose real name is Gina, actually. 
because the regime wouldn't allow her family to give her a Kurdish name. That's the level of repression in Iran. And I expect these uprisings to continue indefinitely until this regime is gone. Of course, this is a very brutal regime. In 2019, it just butchered thousands of people and committed a crime that really the international community doesn't know very much about the U.S., and European media barely covered it, which is, I think, a travesty. And I think it really, in large part due to the nuclear agreement and Zarif's network, they've really kept news of what's happening in Iran from the public. And for the sake of this nuclear agreement, and they're still, I think, trying to do that. You know, now I think the world is much more aware of what's going on in Iran through the effort of a lot of Iranian democracy activists. And with Massa's murder, I think now the world has really woken up to what's happening in Iran. But we still don't see any sort of reaction from the Biden administration and its European partners are so focused on the nuclear issue. And now they're engaging with President Raisi, who... Uh, oh, they're not, a, but they're not actually engaged because he's still. The line well, is the, that the Iranian delegation will not meet with any American. Yeah, yeah. I mean, through the through the Europeans, the French president is meeting yeah. with some today. It's you know, I don't, I don't think that's really a, a major. I don't think it's very important that you know that the Iranian and U.S. diplomats are not meeting directly. It's still engagement, as far as I see it. You know, this and Raisi, like you said, head of the Death Committee that executed thousands of prisoners in 1988. He's a virulent Jew hater. I think he's just a fascist. I mean, just because he wears a robe and is a cleric doesn't mean he's not a fascist. There are a lot of fascists within that system, and they really adhere to a very dark ideology. A hundred percent. Now... Let's use the rest of this time because we've now established that the Iranian people are there's there there is a there is a movement. It is a prairie fire in Iran right mm-hmm. now. Sure. Um, and there there's a and and what I want to get at is I you know I I don't understand the zombie policy to revive the Iran nuclear agreement. There's a we could do a whole show mm-hmm. on why it's such a dumb sure. idea. And I think it's motivated because it's like sometimes people just do stuff because they don't know what else to do. And I think some of it's also just like the Obama legacy and it's, there's ego stuff that's driving, driving some of Of course, people's careers. Yeah. Your career and all this. Okay, fine. But that said, what would be a better approach right now? Because we saw these rumors and it's, we, nobody has any real information, but you know, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the Supreme leader, the Joseph Stalin of Iran is 83 years old. He, he apparently, Mm -hmm. according to the New York times had, bowel surgery that he had mm-hmm. no public appearances for two weeks so you know sometimes i i was gonna say he's knocking on heaven's door he's knocking on hell's door you know i don't know how long he's gonna be with us he's been rumored to be an opium addict you know he's got mm-hmm. a limp arm sure. prostate cancer ayatollah ali Khamenei. you know i don't know how many how many you know years or months he has left but there will be when he dies probably a potentially probably a violent struggle for who gets to run the country, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, like, what should the U.S. do? What should 
the West do? What should the civilized world do when, you know, and as we prepare for, you know, the expiration of Iran's supreme leader? Well, I'm skeptical about the New York Times reporting because they've gotten it wrong, wrong quite a bit. But like you said, he's going to eventually die. And the political system in Iran has prepared for his demise. There's a lot of talk, especially lately, of his son Mushtaba succeeding him as a Supreme leader. Yeah, so the two people who are kind of seen as the front runners is Ebrahim Raisi, who's the current president. Yes. We should say Khamenei was president when Khomeini died and then became the Supreme Leader. So that would be maybe, you know, right. continue. And then his son, who's also has yeah. some right. And Raisi's a possibility. You know, he talks like Khamenei, he even dresses like Mochtava Khamenei's son is also a cleric, but he's more of a behind-the-scenes guy. He's very close to the Revolutionary Guards. I think he makes a lot of decisions in Iran, and we just really don't know very much about it. I don't think the person who succeeds Khamenei is that important, frankly. I think the Revolutionary Guards are going to pick somebody who maintains their money flow. A lot of these guys are very wealthy. They have houses in Spain and... California and Toronto. And so they want to make sure that they stay in power and stay wealthy. But so I one think thing the America and Canada can do is that if if a dirtbag regime insider has a mansion in California or Toronto, seize it. Right. Well, the, the regime, there's, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of regime officials and their family members living in the US, Canada and Europe. I did a lot of investigation of the regime's influence in Canada. They have tons of people there, and the Trudeau government won't do anything about it, although it has promised justice to the PS752 families, you know, the, the Ukraine flight that was shut maybe, down. Maybe, maybe a strategy for Canada and the Trudeau government is to, to tell Prime Minister Trudeau that the Revolutionary Guard is also not taking their vaccines, and so <laughs> that maybe he would actually crack down on it. So, That's very funny. It could yeah. work, Pathub. But yeah, you know, investigate the regime's lobby in the United States. I think the US, U.S. administration, whether it's Democratic or Republican, should really look at how much influence the Islamic Republic has built in America. It's not just Russian or Chinese influence. Yeah. Focus on human rights. When the Trump administration was in power, you know, whatever criticism you have of Trump, his administration had a very powerful public diplomacy strategy toward Iran. Iranians love the State Department's social media feed. Now, it, you know, the social media feed talks about how the hijab is a good thing. It's just what? bizarre to me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a um, it's, it's terrible. If wow. you follow them on Twitter and elsewhere, it's just terrible. And they talk uh, about the hijab being a good thing. Yeah. And how, you know, Iranian women want to wear it. It's like, really I'm weird embar I'm embarrassed stuff. for my State Department if that's the case. That's horrible. Yeah, just, just look at their feet. I think during the last round of demonstrations, they were talking about, what's that biking exercise that's really popular? Spin classes. Oh. That's their feed was talking about spin classes where people, when people in Iran were protesting and dying. They're doing it in Persian, so it's meant for an Iranian audience. So that has to be fixed. I think this idea that diplomacy will work with this regime is very cliche and outdated. I think the JCPOA is a failure of a policy. I really hope that the Biden administration officials really look at what's happening in Iran. Look at the videos. Look at what people are chanting. 
you know, don't, don't count on nuclear diplomacy to solve your problems. The, the root cause of the problem is the Islamic Republic. It's not about how many centrifuges it spends. The only solution to the nuclear issue and any other issue the world has with Iran is if the system goes away and a new political system comes about that's chosen by the Iranian people in democratic elections. And that's so you, just you the reality. You think that the United States should like lay that out as a kind of horizon for Iran? It should think about the problem in, in that way, yes. And the U.S. has a lot of powerful tools it doesn't use. I think on one side, people argue diplomacy is the solution. And on the other side, there are a group of people that think sanctions is a, are the solution, just impose more sanctions on Iran. I think you know, sanctions have their place. They can be effective. Iranian dissidents have called for the maintenance of sanctions. Even diplomacy has its place. But I think we have to get rid of this naive viewpoint that the system can change. And if we just give the regime more concessions, it will stop the nuclear program or act better in the Middle East. You know, there, there were these rumors that the U.S.-Iran envoy Robert Malley had asked the regime for a letter promising to behave well in the Middle East. I just, I find that really unfathomable. Even if it's not sincere, these sort of policies just damage U.S. interests in the long term. You have to think of Iran as a country, not a nuclear file. Okay. Now, last part of the interview, we're going to steal Manna. So here's what I think okay. is the one legitimate objection to our perspective, which is that the United States, you know, we are not going to be the authors of Iranian Iran's next revolution. However, we should support it. And there's lots of things that we can do. And we should and we should shun and isolate, you know, the illegitimate regime at this point, in my view. But there's a lot of nuclear facilities in Iran. Right. There's a lot of nuclear material in Iran. If there is a regime collapse and anarchy is in the streets, that, that is a national security emergency. Right. So sure. my question to you is, is it, is, is, do you have any sympathy for the position of like, okay, listen, I'm not saying that the, the JCPOA is in peaches and cream, but it's like right. the least worst option at this point, because if we can't afford to allow this advanced program to basically get in the hands of God knows who, because I mean, that would be really close to maybe giving nuclear material or blueprints, yeah, I, I whatever, to like it. terrorists. You know, you sure. don't know. You know, there's all kinds of awful scenarios that can happen. And not just nuclear materials. I mean, the regime could assemble nuclear weapons in the future. So I think that's within the realm of possibility. Well, that's that's and, a different question. I'm talking about if there is a regime collapse. Yeah. Which and I'm sympathetic I hope there to that is a regime collapse. Yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic right. to that argument. Look, yeah, I worked in U.S. national security my entire career. I've worked with every U.S. government agency you can imagine. I've heard the arguments. I participated in the discussions. Yes, I, I understand this worry about the nuclear infrastructure. You know, there is a possibility that this regime could collapse and lose control of this vast nuclear facility. Things are not looking very stable in Iran right now. Is the regime going to collapse today? I don't know. Could it be in five years? Could it be sooner? Who knows? But the current strategy is not working. The Biden administration's 
strategy is actually speeding up the nuclear program. It's leading to more instability in the Middle East. It is, I think, incentivizing the Israelis to take action on their own, whether to sabotage the well, program, they which they have been, which they have been, or take over military action against the underground nuclear facilities. You can make the argument only the U.S. can really destroy the nuclear program, mm. but the Israelis can set it back. You know, that's that's one option as well. And I think, you know, this is not something the Biden administration wants, right? But by pursuing this failed strategy, it is actually enhancing the possibility of war with Iran. Because when we look at the track record from 2015 to the current time, nothing has worked with this regime. And I really do think, and I'm biased, I admit to, to being biased, Eli. I know I was born in Iran, I grew up there. I, I really care about the country. But I think ultimately, the people of Iran will change the political system. But the people of Iran don't want the U.S. government to engage with this regime and enrich it. And this is what the U.S. is doing right now. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to end it. And we could talk for hours. And I recommend following Ali Resonator on Twitter. He always has the best kind of links that you'll see on his Twitter feed, especially with regards to the, like, the latest on the protests. He's a fine analyst. And I really thank you for making this episode so great, Ali Reza. I really appreciate it. Thanks thank you. again for coming on. It was a great on. discussion. Yeah, great was, discussion. I, I loved you. it. Thank you. My pleasure. Jennifer. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.